It was four years ago that the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, OFPP, set a deadline of 2022 to train acquisition people to buy technology differently. OFPP thought it was giving agencies plenty of time to accomplish this goal. The idea of the Digital IT Acquisition Professional Program, or DITAP, came from a competition held way back in 2015 to improve the federal government's approach to buying digital services. Leslie Field is the acting OFPP administrator. Joni Newhart is the associate administrator for Acquisition Workforce Programs. They tell executive editor Jason Miller that agencies will come close to meeting that deadline for DITAP. First, you hear Newhart. The DITAP program, as we call it, has been a huge success. We have trained over 700 folks on how to buy digital services, which is a, a whole different skill than buying pretty much everything else. It's a very immersive program, and it's a cohort-based program, so people go through the, the six months or so together. Uh, we have five commercial vendors that now offer DITAP, and FEI offers a cohort or two every year for agencies on top of that. So it's a really good news story. I have to share with you that at the very first graduation, one of the graduates was a a mid-level contracting officer, and she said that this program opened her eyes and just really re-energized her career as she saw the possibilities of how to apply what she learned to every procurement. And uh, that was really heartwarming to hear, and and I hope all of the graduates uh, feel that way and they take it back to all of their agencies. That's obviously great news, but Joni, I'll go back to 700 contracting officers or acquisition folks have been trained. Do you know that's out of 5,000, out of 25,000? Do you know how many more still have to go? And that 2022 deadline, is that going to be achievable still? It is achievable. And folks have a certain amount of time once they get into one of those jobs to take the training. So uh, it's still being ramped up. As you know, a program like that, it takes a while to get ramped up. But yeah, I, I think there's more to go in this space, but we've trained a lot of folks and a lot more are, are headed to training soon. So I, yeah, I think that's all good news. And if folks are interested or wondering, you know, do they know if they're qualified or they know they should be qualified for this or can anyone take it? Where do they find more information? Right now it's for FACSI level two and above. So contracting officers level two certified and above that may change as we moder- uh, modernize our certification, but they, there's two sources of information um, at FAI.gov. There's a lot of information on the certifications and then at the tech far hub, which is easy to Google. Um, there's a whole section on DITAP and who the commercial providers are and pretty much more than than what you need to know about DITAP so they can get all the information there. All right, excellent. I will make sure we link to that as well on federalnewsnetwork.com. What's next? What else are you working on? What are some other priorities? Maybe Leslie, lead us off there. As you know, Jason, uh, workforce remains our top priority here at OFPP, and it's a pillar of our new president's management agenda. So if you haven't seen that, check us out on performance.gov. And it's something that we work on every day to be sure that our community has the information, the data, the tools, and the training that they need. And we work very closely with agency acquisition leaders and others in the community to strengthen the civilian agency acquisition workforce. And of course, working very closely with DAU um, on training for new administration priorities, such as equity, made in America, sustainability, uh, and supply chain, to name a few. So there's a lot going on in that space. But we're also really focused on developing pipelines 
in order to have a flow of talent for the agencies, modernizing our certification programs and establishing cross-government acquisition workforce networking opportunities, because we heard during a lot of our focus group sessions that that's really what um, our career acquisition folks wanted. And I don't know if you know that, but in the acquisition workforce, there are three times as many people over the age of 60 as there are under 30. And there are more people over 70 than under 25. So that's a pretty stark way of saying that there's only about 7% of the acquisition workforce is under the age of 30 now. And I think that statistic uh, alone is a pretty compelling case that uh, for us to continue making workforce development and recruitment a top priority. So that's really where we're focused. We're really pleased that it's part of the PMA and there's just a lot more work to come, but I think we're well positioned to do that work. Now, Leslie, you talk about the numbers, and, and I remember hearing you recently, you spoke at the Professional Services Council, and I was kind of surprised by those numbers as well. Yeah. What, what can you do about it? So this understanding developing pipelines, modernizing certification programs, those are all good things. But, but from a recruitment standpoint, from a getting folks interested in, in being a contracting officer who are under 30, what, what's something, what is something that OFPP can do, OFPP can do, or something you're working with the Chief Acquisition Officers Council to do? I think in the way that we describe our work, we need to be um, a little more mindful of the language that we use um, to make sure that uh, folks see this as the opportunity that it is. It really is the business of government and how we write our job announcements, I think is important to get folks interested. So we've been working with the community on writing those announcements in a way that make perhaps more compelling to the up and coming generation. We're also working on streamlining some of the, the hiring procedures for the acquisition workforce in particular. I think modernizing the certification programs will help the folks once they get in the door. And I think every agency that we've talked to is thinking about intern programs or thinking about um, leveraging some of the hiring authorities that we already have. So just putting a finer point on some of those flexibilities, uh, making sure that our community is aware that the pipeline issue really is a top priority, um, which I think they do. But there's a lot that we can do from the OFPP perch here to, to help the agencies sort of navigate those authorities and the opportunities there. Has there been any discussion among the CAO Council about upskilling, reskilling to get folks into the acquisition workforce who maybe have program management or other kind of skill sets similar to what we've seen with cyber and data? Yeah, it's, it's a great strategy, Jason. And I, and I know that our community is very focused on bringing the program managers into the conversation and, uh, and the CORs and determining uh, sort of opportunities for them. So I think that's absolutely another strategy in the toolbox that we'll be looking at. FAI, Federal Acquisition Institute, moved to a new training application. It's, it's something that you guys, I think, have been working on for the better part of a year or more. What's the status of it? Discuss that new training application. Why'd you do it? And g give me some of the background. FAI transitioned from its uh, customized government uh, FAI training application system, commonly known as FATAS, to a commercial platform, which is Cornerstone On Demand or CSOD, about a year ago. And the transition has gone relatively well. Of course, there are always a few challenges, uh, which is to be expected uh, whenever you're managing a government-wide IT project. And Joni can tell you a little bit about why we did that. We did that because you know that having a customized solution, IT solution, is not the right answer these days. And it was much better for us to go to a commercial platform, which has so many users across industry, across government. And so there are frequent enhancements to this system that maybe we didn't even think about. So going to a commercial platform is always a good idea. And it's worked out well for us, I'd have to say. Can you walk me through some of the other things that why the Cornerstone On Demand, the, the new IT system is going to be better than FATUS? 
I think the primary benefits of the new platform are, as Joni mentioned, it's a commercial platform. So we've got more standardization, which enables streamlined management and planning based on a common definition. So for example, we now have a common continuous learning window that Joni talked about. So that makes everything easier. I think we've also gained process efficiency. So for example, we can bulk process external learning events and that saves countless hours of repetitive input and processing time. So if you think about a conference, a training provider can upload all of the attendees information versus having each attendee do that. So much, uh, much more efficient. And we can also do better resource sharing. So for example, the training assets of the Defense Acquisition University, FAI, and some of the civilian agency acquisition schools now share training resources in a single location so that we can more easily find and register for classes across all of these institutions. Leslie Field is the acting administrator of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. Joni Newhart is the associate administrator for Acquisition Workforce Programs. They were speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller about OFPP's priorities heading into 2023 and beyond. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did 
you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.